Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there, whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, May 16th, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. I'm Guy Eero, and have we got an episode for you this week. Today we'll be discussing a really neat fish, a species that has important historical ties to both indigenous peoples and early European settlers. Today, this fish is held in great reverence by a subset of dedicated sport anglers on both coasts. In 2017, it was formally recognized as the official fish of the District of Columbia. It's the first clupea that we've had the pleasure of featuring on this show. We are talking about the American Shad, Alosa sapidissima. Joining us for this discussion, we've got John Waldman. John's an aquatic conservation biologist. He's a professor of biology at Queens College in New York. And he's also a dedicated writer and author who's really focused on the amazing sea-run fishes, including American shad along the East Coast. And John, we're really happy to have you here today. Hey, thanks for having me. I look forward to it. Yeah. So, yeah. So Guy and I have been really excited to talk about shad for a while. And John, we know you're a fisherman and that shad migrations up the East Coast rivers mark the coming of spring. And for that reason, we're actually going to be releasing this episode to correspond with World Fish Migration Day, which is in May every year. And that said, up and down the East Coast, fishermen, they use environmental cues to figure out when the shad might be coming upriver. And we were wondering what you look for to tell us it's time to go fishing for shad and when to hit the water. Well, generally, we know from past experience that these fish will show up in the Delaware River, which is the nearest river near where I live on Long Island, that I can access shad sometime in late March. And it really gets rolling in April and early May. It's pretty much over by early June. So a combination of just knowing from the years past that this is when they arrive, and then looking at fishing reports online, and there's a uh, flowering yellow bush called the shad bush, which is named shad bush because it tends to become beautifully adorned with yellow flowers about the same time the shad run is peaking. So there are plenty of ways to know shad are in the rivers. It's a very predictable thing, which is part of the beauty of anadromous fish runs. They are very predictable. You know, if you think about shad and the fish that are in the Delaware River, Starting this time of year, if you went looking for them in the open ocean with 100 trawl nets, you might not find one. But you know that based on past history, they're going to come marching up the river around a certain date and be available. And you can either manage them well and have them forever, or you could not do so, which is what's been happening to a large degree along the Atlantic. So if this bush is kind of associated with this shadow and got the name, it seems that it suggests that the shad is a very important species, yet there's all these different anadromous species that are coming up. Like you mentioned, you got your stripers. Historically, you had your Atlantic salmon. Eventually, you got your sturgeon coming up. So why is the shad run in particular important among all these anadromous fishes? You have to realize just how incredible the numbers were back in their heyday. You know, at a time when people were, Native Americans were living and having harsh times in the winter, and then colonists too, to have such a vast amount of tasty food basically coming up to your, you know, your backyard shores around a predictable time was an incredible bonus. The sizes of these runs were beyond belief. You know, I, I, the book I wrote about all this called Running Silver, the term is derived from the idea that rivers were sometimes so full of these migrating fish that the water looked like it was running silver with their flashing bodies. And we don't see that anymore, except in artificial situations like below a dam where they become congregated because they can't get any further. The main or the most productive shad rivers on the East Coast were the Potomac and the Susquehanna. Uh, the Potomac produced at, in its heyday in the 1830s, 22 million shad harvested out of the river. 
never mind all those that were left behind. So the numbers were astounding, and these fish were eaten by the public. Because they arrived in the spring after a time of hardship in winter, they were a cause for celebration. So there were uh, shad bakes on rivers up and down the coast. And a shad bake was a community affair where they would take oak planks and take fillets of shad and nail them to the uh, planks and put bacon crosswise and then just roast them against the fire. And that was, you know, part of a big party, acknowledging the fact that good times had arrived. And uh, there were shad vendors who would come into towns in the Susquehanna Valley and and ring a bell and yell shadow, shadow, and the housewives would come out and, and buy shad. Shad were used as currency in trades very often where uh, money wasn't available. They were just a huge part of life in those days, something that has been largely forgotten. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just, I'd really like to just go back in time several hundred years and see what all these fish look like, these runs and everything together. I think it'd be super cool. And it's kind of sad, you know, the Hudson River, which I've been associated with my whole career, had shad bakes too. And I went to one years ago with actual real shad, which was wonderful. The last time I went to a Hudson River shad bake, they had to substitute steelhead trout for oh. uh, shad because they couldn't get their hands on any shad because their numbers have declined so badly. And that's quite a different fish than the one that we're talking about, a steelhead versus a shad. I mean, yeah. very, very different. Huh. So just to kind of tie back to something you said, you mentioned running silver. What do these fish look like? Like if you had one of these fish in hand, could you just describe kind of the size and what they look like maybe compared to some other fish? A shad is a big slab-sided silvery, large-scale fish that has a moderate-sized mouth and kind of a dark back, not much in the way of any kind of pattern on the, on the back, just a big silvery slab. It's been called the poor man salmon, partly because it is a very tasty fish, which we should talk about, and partly because it's a great game fish, which uh, reminds people of salmon. Doesn't the name have something to do with the tastiness? The Latin name for American shad is Alosa sapidissima, and it means the most delicious of herrings. And it is by far, I think, the most tasty. I'm not a big fan of Atlantic herring, but uh, none of the others, I think, taste as good. And uh, it's quite revered. There's a great book about shad, if you're interested in uh, kind of a a history of the species by John McPhee called The Founding Fish. And uh, he took this to the extreme. He's experimented with various recipes. And there are two aspects to eating shad that are popular. One is shad roe, their eggs, which are considered a springtime delicacy. It's a very heavy, nutrient-rich kind of experience, and it's usually cooked with bacon. The other is to um, just broil it in some fashion. And McPhee is so precise that he says that if you broil it nine inches away from the uh, heat source, you need to do 15 and a half minutes. 15 minutes is just barely done, and 16 is overdone. So it's a delicate fish in that respect, too. But if you do it right, it actually is delicious. The challenge, though, is actually eating it despite all the bones. The shad has a remarkable number of bones. I remember my mentor in graduate school spending part of a day trying to count how many bones were in a shad. He got into the 700s before he lost count. Oh, man. And I saw somewhere that somebody else counted 769. So you're, you're dealing with a critter that has uh, many possible uh, booby traps to, a, <laughs> to an enjoyable meal. And there's two ways you can handle that. One is if you can find shad that have been cleaned by a so-called shad boner, which is a rare bird these days. Uh, There aren't many people who know how to do this. You can have essentially bone-free slabs of shad. The other is the way I do it, because I never learned how to do this technique, which involves two knives and a lot of special cuts, is to uh, just basically cook it by the McPhee method, 
and then get your hands dirty and, and with a small fork and just pick away at the flesh and spit out the bones. And it's a very earthy experience, but it's quite tasty. That's how I usually do it <laughs> when I eat fish. So I've fished for shad before on the Potomac, but I was catching a lot of hickory shad. And I was wondering if you could maybe describe some of the differences between these two Alosa species and also why one might be doing a whole lot better than the others is at least what it seems. The hickory shad is coming on strong in the Northeast. It's a smaller shad. It's more closely related to alewives and blueback herring than it is to shad. So it's kind of like a big river herring. And uh, it's doing well because climate change is helping it spread its range further north. It's reached Maine after uh, not really being much above the Delaware River, you know, in decades past. And it also spawns in the lower reaches of rivers. So it's not as affected by dams as the American shad, which is trying very hard to get way upstream. So hickory shad are, I would say, rising in abundance just from, you know, my, my watching the angling scene, for instance, whereas American shad are still very challenged in most rivers mostly by dams, I have to say. Uh, it's been estimated that American shad have lost 40% of their spawning range in rivers because of dams, and that's put a big hurt on their populations. One particular river that I, I focused on in my book, which I found very sort of revealing of what's going on with shad, is the Susquehanna. Susquehanna is a, is a huge, wide, shallow river that is just nirvana for shad spawning, and Shad used to run 500 miles in that river to the center of New York State at Cooperstown along the way, basically feed people every mile. The shad run was so huge in the Susquehanna that at Scranton, Pennsylvania, one of the fisheries would actually post a sentry on a hill with, with a spyglass to watch the water below. And they could, they could actually see the water swell from the bodies of the fish. The schools were so huge that the, the water would just change its shape as these fish moved upstream in mass. There was another fishery at the mouth of the Susquehanna at Harvard or Grace called the Stump Farm Fishery. And one day they set a very, very long net just as an incredible north wind started to blow. And the wind blew for four days. They couldn't get the net in against the wind. The net filled with fish. And then when the wind reversed to the south, it took three more days to land the net. And it was estimated there were 15 million Shannon River herring in that one hole. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Four dams in a row were placed on the lower river to generate energy from 10 miles up from the mouth on up above that. And uh, they do pass shad, but the target for restoration in that river is three quarters of a million shad to the spawning grounds, probably way, way, way below what ran there originally. And in recent years, because you can count each fish that goes over a hydro dam, they have facilities for counting them. They've had total runs of, of sometimes 100 or 8 or 0 fish. So I think the story of anadromous fish in the U.S. is, for the most part, one of our greatest conservation failures. You know, I think if, um, if we had birds flying into a wall, people would be going crazy because it would be visible. But these anadromous migratory fish are essentially trying to swim past an underwater wall in so many cases with these dams that have this poor fish passage. And it's, it's just a tremendous conservation loss that is not, I think, as fully recognized as it should be. I'm from Portland, kind of, originally. And out on the Columbia River, they got the world's largest run currently of American shad, over like yeah. 5 million fish per year. Yet, it's known for having these hydropower operations uh, going on. it. So what's the difference between those dams out west that allow such a strong run of American shad where they're not native and the dam systems on the east? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, 
you know, shad occur naturally from the St. Lawrence River in Quebec down to the St. Johns River in Florida. So they cover most of the East Coast. They were transplanted to the West Coast in the late 1800s, and they took off in a big way and have colonized a lot of West Coast rivers. The Columbia River has a really huge flow, about 300,000 cubic feet per second. And their fish ladder passes two to 3,000 cubic feet per second. That is like a river in its own right. In fact, there are many shad rivers on the East Coast that don't even have two to 3,000 cubic feet per second in total, never mind the 50 or 60 cubic feet per second they have in their fish ladders. So the East Coast fish ladders have been built to model what worked for salmon on the West Coast in many smaller rivers, and they pass very little water through their fish ladders. And shad are big water fish that don't feel comfortable in these places. So they don't work very well. The best fish passage on the East Coast on a hydro dam is probably at the Holyoke Dam in the Connecticut River, which passes about three or 400,000 shad a year in an elevator, which is a different contraption. But the point is that the fish ladders on the East Coast, for the most part, are not suited for shad because they're just not big enough to make the fish feel comfortable. And the problem is that these rivers are so much smaller than the West Coast rivers. You know, we're talking about 10 or 15,000 cubic feet per second for larger rivers and a lot less for smaller rivers, that you don't have enough water to divide up between having profitable turbine spinning and enough water for the latter. So we have to make a choice societally between, you know, what is a river for? And if it's for shad, then the uh, dam should come down. If it's for hydropower, then you're probably going to have to live with a rather uh, minimal run of fish. I think there are ways around this. You know, nowadays with solar energy and wind power coming on so strong and dams becoming, especially in the Northeast, rather aged and in some cases, you know, almost dangerous. Uh, it's time to start thinking about taking dams down and, uh, and just replacing that hydropower with other sources. So we had in the past, people were really looking towards these rivers. It was a, you know, predominant source of food, all these different sea run fish. People then turned away from these rivers kind of during the industrial revolution. Have you seen any kind of resurgence or momentum around these dam removal efforts or other restoration efforts in the Northeast or other parts of the Eastern U.S.? Yes, I think we're coming around to uh, realizing that we'd be better off fish-wise if the dams weren't there. You know, in terms of the history you just mentioned, Henry David Thoreau, you know, was famous for a book about a certain pond, but he also wrote a book about the Merrimack and Concord Rivers and spent 10 days paddling on them with his uh, his brother. He called it a week on the uh, Concord and Merrimack Rivers. And in it, he's looking at industrialization ramping up on the Merrimack River. And at a time when people were really excited about the Industrial Revolution and so-called progress, he just lamented in passage after passage of what he saw as the uh, impending demise of these fish. And he even asked the question, which is really quite plaintive and amazing, who hears the fishes when they cry? And, and he, he basically heard the fishes crying at a time when everybody else was not listening. So I think we're swinging back to this realization that the time of, of, of large hydro dams in many cases is over, you know, and that some of our, our rivers are, should be treated as retired rivers. They did their job for us for a long time in terms of uh, supporting industry. And that's not where industry is coming from these days. You know, a lot of these old mills are being turned into apartment houses. It's time to start rethinking about how we manage and use our rivers. And, and dam removal is certainly a part of this and is something that is catching on, partly because it's the right thing to do, I think, ecologically, and partly because we have to, because 
these dams, I've toured dams in New England, and some of them are frankly decrepit, and uh, they're not going to last forever. Another factor on the East Coast is that we have vast amounts of wind energy coming in offshore. You know, right now, I think we have about five wind power turbines on the East Coast. Europe has 4,000. Once we have the hundreds or thousands actually installed, it's going to give us the headroom to start thinking about making major energy changes terrestrially, including hydro dams. So it, it's really easy to say, okay, let's take down the dams. They're decrepit. They're not doing their job anymore. But it's not, I've talked to people who have worked on dam removal projects, and it's not as easy as just drilling some holes, putting some dynamite, blow it up Ed Abbey style or anything like that. So what other things are kind of standing in the way procedurally, culturally from taking out some of these dams? Yeah, it's, it's not easy to get to the point of the dynamite or the bulldozer. Uh, you're talking about having to convince people that this should be done, then getting all kinds of permits, and bringing in sometimes lawyers, bringing in engineers, bringing in hydrologists, getting the community on board. There's a lot of legwork before you come to the point where you actually start swinging uh, heavy equipment. So that's part of the problem. And the thing is that many of the other drivers of decline have been dealt with already or can't be dealt with. You know, climate change is not going to be reversed anytime soon. Non-native species that prey on the juvenile shed are, are here to stay in all these rivers where they've been introduced. Overfishing has been handled to a large degree by better management. Pollution has faded as a, as a factor because of the Clean Water Act and its benefits. So dams are the one place where we still have the tractability of a driver to really affect a lot of change. I guess in terms of getting folks interested and excited about this fish, what are some strategies? I mean, we have kind of the fishing piece. We've got the eating piece. These fish are connected to other fishes, I presume, that eat them. What are what are your ideas? Well, I think education and exposure. I like to use shad as kind of like the poster child for the problem of migratory fish on the East Coast because shad like to spawn way up rivers. And if you can get the shad to the spawning grounds, all the other fish follow. You don't have to solve them individually. If the shad are there, your lamprey are going to follow, your sturgeon are going to follow, your striped bass are going to follow, the river herring are going to follow. So I think they should be used as kind of the emblematic species for river restoration. I do think that the more anglers that are out there enjoying the species, the more attention they'll get. And they're, they're, shad are a funny fish in terms of angling. You know, there's an old saying that, uh, or an old belief that shad don't eat when they're running up their spawning rivers because their stomachs, when they're netted, never have any food in them. But it's not like it's some kind of policy for the shad. What it is, I think, is that these are zooplankton feeders out in the open ocean. And when they come into a river in the spring, there's nothing to eat, period. You know, there's just nothing that simulates or parallels what they experience in, in ocean waters. So, you know, the fact that they strike lures is telling me they would feed, but the food isn't there. What else is eating the shad? So you've got the adults coming in, and then when the juveniles were exiting, even like in the past when they had larger numbers, like what other fish are these fish important to? Yeah, I would say that when they're moving back downriver after being spawned, they have a whole gauntlet of species to avoid. And it's, again, a lot of them are non-native, like largemouth bass, smallmouth bass are kind of grandfathered in by fishermen to northeastern rivers, but they were not native here. And, you know, a largemouth bass is like a vacuum cleaner with fins. It just sucks up everything that swims by. So they have a, you know, they, they have to swim down river past the black basses, uh, past uh, non-native fish like the snakehead in Chesapeake Bay, past pickerel and pike, and then later striped bass. So the juveniles are being hit as they come into the ocean. And then as they're 
migrating around in the open ocean, they're vulnerable to bluefish and striped bass and weakfish and sharks and, and you know, pretty much anything that is a uh, piscivorous game fish. So their numbers are being um, whittled down as time goes on. And there's also bycatch in the Atlantic herring fishery. Shad apparently mixed with blueback and alewives are sometimes caught in conjunction with uh, Atlantic herring, which is a purely oceanic fish, which is a very popular food fish. And it's believed that that bycatch actually may be one of the major factors that's still limiting the recovery of American shad. There are attempts to kind of steer away the herring fishery away from those locations where they mix with shad, and that could be a help. Yeah. I think a point I'd like to make too, I mean, you have kind of all of these species interact, especially that kind of native suite of diadromous fishes. And as herring were coming up river, you had salmon smotes going downstream. So I think there's a lot, kind of that buffering that these herring fishes used to provide to other species that are of value. I think it's important to kind of look at them all kind of in that holistic picture. Yeah, that's been a concern about Atlantic salmon. Atlantic salmon used to migrate downstream, mixed in with vastly greater numbers of river herring and shad juveniles. And nowadays, with those numbers reduced, they don't have that kind of safety and numbers cover they used to have. Yeah, it's all connected. So we talk a lot about anadromous fish on this show, especially when we're out in Alaska. And we, those are mostly semiparous. One thing that I think is interesting about the American shad is that depending on what part of its range it's in, it can be either semiparous or iteriparous, which we're talking about how many times it spawns, whether it dies or if it comes back. I'm saying that for the audience. I know you know it, John. <laughs> but uh, I'm curious what causes that and what effect does that have on the reproductive capacity each given time for uh, these fishes? Yeah, that's a great question. The shad is really unusual in that the populations north of, of Cape Hatteras, from Cape Hatteras on up to Canada, are iteroparous, which means they spawn more than once in life. They can spawn three or four times, whereas the ones south of there to the St. John's River are semiparous, so they spawn once and die. And, you know, it's hard to prove these things, but a very sort of elegant case was made by Bill Leggett, a great fish biologist, showing that habitats north of uh, Cape Hatteras are much more uncertain because they're in colder climates where the spring can come early, the spring can come late. You can have a lot of rain, a little bit of rain. And it, it's kind of a bet hedging thing to spawn several times in life because some years you may not have a good reproduction. Whereas the rivers of the South tend to have very predictable, even climates and not much change from season to season. So there's less of a need to actually hedge your bets. You can come in with a big load of eggs and deposit them all at once, and then you can die and leave your nutrients behind. So it's it's a different life history strategy, but it's a stark one to occur within one single species. I had the pleasure of actually going out when I was working on Running Silver to uh, spend an evening and night catching shad in the Delaware by net for a, uh, a stocking program. And it was a lot of fun. We were on this uh, long pool on the Delaware. We were about eight or 10 feet of water. And right before dark, the water started erupting with all these fish, with the males chasing, the bucks chasing the rows, as they call them. And uh, before you knew it, the water was just alive with fish splashing and spawning. And you could actually almost smell the uh, gametes in the air. They, the water was so rich and so full of eggs and sperm that, you know, you, you knew you were in the middle of a giant orgy. And it was, it was a very cool experience. It's not something most people get to experience. <laughs> I've heard that described some of the people in these hatchery systems, like you're saying, where they, uh, you know, sometimes they strip spawn them. Sometimes they let them spawn in a tank naturally. And in the cases where they're in the tank, I've heard them describe like, you know, when it gets going, it starts to be like you're looking into a big vat of milk. 
not milt, but milk. Wow. Yeah. And actually the milt is the milt is edible. There are people who actually prefer the milt fried up with bacon more so than the eggs. The eggs are really, really rich. The job of an egg, whether it's for a fish or for a bird, is to provide a lot of nutrition to the very first stages of development for whatever is in that egg. So when you eat an egg, you're eating a lot of nutrition and it's it's an acquired taste. There are people who are crazy about Jadro and people who don't want to go anywhere near it. Yeah, we fry the milt um, from salmon up here. That's like a, our kids really like that. And it's like a big, it looks like a, the salmon tenders. I think I've talked about them before on the show, but yeah, it looks just like a chicken tender and about the same size. And I think I tried some when he was up here for his fellowship. Yeah, okay. I've had some. And he survived <laughs> apparently. It's yeah. good. I'm alive. <laughs> so you mentioned, um, I mean, I guess when they're spawning, is it, a, you mentioned nighttime, is this a certain like kind of you know, time of day that's good for fishing or also time of day or night that's particularly good for spawning for these fish? It's not a good time for fishing because uh, for one thing, um, fish can't see your lures very well. And for another thing, their minds are very much on a different subject. So um, you're not going to catch them then, but they do for some reason like to spawn at that time. I'm not sure why. They just will kind of key in. They're there beforehand. They're just sitting there in the current, but some kind of cue, probably the amount of light tells them, okay, Let's get going. It's a little safer, a little safer to do it at night too. Maybe, you know, maybe from bird predation. I mean, just speculating that uh, it probably is safer in terms of predators, but uh, who knows? All right. Well, John, this was great chatting with you and we hope people get out and enjoy all the fish and especially American shad and some of those other really neat diagramous fish on the East Coast and West Coast. Right on. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Okay. Well, watch out for those bones. Yep. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick, and my co-host is Guy Eero. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert, production management by Gabriella Montaquin, post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. 